Good morning, everyone. Congratulations on making it here after the Saturday night before Halloween and the Saturday of EAG. Big accomplishment for a morning. Uh, and welcome to Causes and Uncertainty, Rethinking Value in Expectation. Uh, we're very lucky to have two speakers for today's talk. Um, Bob Fisher is a Senior Research Manager for Rethink Priorities, or RP, the lead of RP's Worldview Investigations team, and an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Texas State University. Prior to his work with the Worldview Investigations team, he led RP's Moral Weight Project. Uh, we also have Laura Duffy here today. Uh, Laura is an Executive Research Coordinator for co-CEO Marcus Davis and works on the Worldview Investigations team at Rethink Priorities. Uh, she is a graduate of the University of Chicago, where she earned a Bachelor's of Science in Statistics and co-facilitated UChicago's Effective Altruism Introductory Fellowship. Um, as a reminder, it might be a good time right now to pull open Swap Card and click on this session and the Live Discussion tab. Uh, you'll see that there's a chat, and also if you click over to the Questions tab, uh, you can ask a question yourself or like upvote or downvote questions that are already there, so we can make sure that I ask the ones you guys are most curious about first. Um, and I'll select a mixture of sort of prepared and audience questions to ask our speakers for the Q&A afterwards. Uh, after that Q&A, there's going to be a workshop directly following this uh, called Modeling Your Own Cause Prioritization. If you want to play around yourself with the model that we'll see in the talk, it should be very fun. That's in room 312, but we'll also just be sort of congregating in the back there and walking over together if you want to join for that. And finally, at noon, there will be office hours with both of our speakers today uh, in room 310. So lots of opportunities to engage with this stuff. Um, but let's get to the good stuff without further ado. Please join me in welcoming Bob and Laura. Thank you so much, folks. Really appreciate your taking the time away from a couple of one-on-ones that I know you were really excited to do, to be here instead and talk about uh, causes and uncertainty. So I am Bob Fisher. Uh, I am the manager of the Worldview Investigations team. And for the last four months, we have been working on this project about expected utility maximization, expected value maximization, and on the other hand, this question about the implications of expected value maximization. And we've been doing this because we are interested in improving uh, the transparency around you know, various conversations that we're having in EA about cause prioritization. Cause prioritization is really hard. <laughs> we all know it's really hard. We all know thinking about these big questions is really difficult. There are hard trade-offs that we often do not know how to make, that we struggle to, to figure out how to think about clearly. And we want to provide tools at Rethink Priorities for having conversations across disagreement better. And part of that involves trying to capture attitudes and ideas that people have that have not been expressed as prominently in EA and giving voice to them and trying to figure out what are their implications? What do they mean for the way that we think about what we ought to do when we are trying to do as much good as possible? Um, go ahead and push us forward. So here are these two influential ideas that we want to put on the table. Um, they're going to be familiar to just about everybody here. But first, the idea that what we ought to do is set priorities based on what would maximize expected value. The idea that what we should do is consider an action, consider the various possible outcomes, consider the values of those outcomes, the probabilities of those outcomes, multiply through and sum, and that tells us the expected value of the action in question. And then which one should we do? Well, whichever has the greatest sum. And of course, one consequence of that is that if there are very large values out there in that possibility space, then even if they have very low probabilities, sometimes those actions end up being the ones that dominate. So low probability but very high EV actions can be the ones that we ought to do. That is just a straightforward implication of expected value maximization. The other idea is just that well, you can see, if we go in for this, and there's a lot of value in the future, as uh, you know, many of us believe, then we're going to get the result that existential risk mitigation, trying to reduce the probability that uh, humanity goes extinct, is going to be one of the prime cause areas. And as we may have noticed uh, in recent years, it feels like there's a lot of momentum around focus on X risk, of course, in particular, X-Risk focused on AI. So we want to investigate these things a bit more carefully. Um, and they're really, with respect to both of these claims, 
a couple of large takeaways that we just want to advance. On the one hand, we just want to point out there are other ways, other, other normative approaches that uh, we may want to give some credence to, and if we do, then we should recognize those are not going to be approaches that recommend expected value maximization. That doesn't that's not a point that we shouldn't care about expected value maximization at all. That is not the claim. The point is just to recognize, hey, under uncertainty, um, some of the values that we might have, some of the normative theories that we might take seriously are going to recommend other approaches to decision making. We want to factor that in. The other thing that we want to recognize is that, well, sure, expected value maximization has a lot going for it, but at least on the face of it, there are other rational risk attitudes. Many of us are uncomfortable with the thought of getting mugged, uh, the idea that someone could come along and offer us huge amounts of value with an extraordinarily low probability of us securing that value, and that that's what we ought to do that we ought to take these gambles that are almost sure not to pay off um, because the EV happens to be high enough. If we are uncomfortable with that, we are typically expressing, or the natural way of interpreting that hesitancy is to think, oh, we've got some level of risk aversion. And what we want to do in this sequence is just recognize, okay, well, if we have those risk attitudes, what are they exactly? What are we valuing? What are we caring about when we are risk averse? And then what are the implications of having those risk attitudes for cause prioritization? So this sequence of reports that we've been producing is not aimed to convince you that you absolutely must reject EV maximization. Instead, it's trying to say, hey, look, here are some things you might already take seriously to some degree or other. What follows if you do? Can we get clearer about the implications of having these risk attitudes to some degree, right? What they are and what it means to have them to some degree. The next is just to essentially put a little bit of pressure, complicate the picture a bit on the case for an automatic dominance of existential risk as the sole cause area. So again, just to be absolutely clear, nothing we are saying says don't work on X risk. That is not the point. We are not trying to tell the AI people to give up, right? This is not what we are about. However, what we are trying to do is say, hey, look, there are, there are some impetus behind the thought that the vast majority of resources in EA should be allocated to existential risk, and we want to just ask, okay, are there any reasons to be cautious about that? Can we put a little bit of pressure on the idea that we want to be going 80, 90, 100% toward X risk? Can we see why we might have some basis for doubt? And essentially, we do that in a few different ways. We want to say, hey, look, you might have thought there was this kind of common sense case for focusing on existential risk. Don't worry about the far future. Just give me the next few hundred years, a thousand years, whatever it might be, and that's enough to get you the result. We want to say, well, it's less clear that that works than one might have thought. We want to point out that the value of the future depends on some very difficult to assess assumptions about the rate of growth, of value in the world, as well as the various kinds of risk profiles, the way risk changes and fluctuates over time. We want to just point out that there are a lot of assumptions that go into a very common sort of story that we face this choice between heaven or hell based on whether or not we get aligned uh, AGI. And we want to recognize that the further out our predictions go, the longer term our forecasts, the more we have to worry about uncertainty swamping any signal from the models that we are using to make those forecasts. And that corrals a bit, we think, some of the case for going all in on existential risk, giving us some reason to diversify. Okay, okay. so now we're going to run through a few points very quickly. What we're going to do in the rest of this talk is essentially give you a highlight of the sequence that we've been working on. So the, uh, the greatest hits of this point. This one we're going to go through extremely quickly. Jump through the next slide, please. Really, all this does, this is, a, this is a, a, a quick report, 
where by quick I mean, you know, only 25 pages, um, that, you know, compared to some of the others. And what it's really trying to do is just point out, hey, look, let's take some other normative theory. Lots of us here are very sympathetic to a broadly uh, utilitarian approach to ethics. Great. I'm on board as well. However, I'm also uncertain. And when I look at other kinds of normative theories, one question to ask is, okay, are they going to converge? Are they going to also recommend spending a lot on existential risk, or are they going to favor other kinds of priorities? And this is just one example of a popular normative theory. We could have chosen others that says, hey, look, you might have thought you get this result, but actually this moral theory does give you a way of setting priorities. It tells you to essentially minimize the claim of those who would be the worst off. And when we do that, we discover that it's not going to generally favor prioritizing those in the far future. Instead, you're going to have reason to focus on the global poor. And so, you know, we can have some longer conversation about alternate moral theories if you're interested. But the interesting thing, the important thing, is just to recognize that under uncertainty, we're going to find a range of theories that do not recommend expected value maximization and instead promote other ways of thinking about how we set priorities. Okay, let's move on. So we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about risk. I'm going to sort of give you the introduction, and then Laura's going to say more about this. But what we want to do is um, recognize this worry about expected value maximization that we've already mentioned. Right? This is the classic Pascal's wager version of this, where we say, oh, look, you know, uh, we have this possibility of infinite bliss if we were just willing to believe. So maybe we should gamble on that, right? And this problem, the problem of um, you know, fanatical results due to expected value maximization doesn't actually require anything to do with infinities. We can get the same kind of result, and we think many people do feel that worry when we think about numerous animals. So I myself have been spending a lot of time working on insects lately. Um, however, you might be concerned. You might think, really, Bob, are you sure? Is that a good use of your time, right? Aren't you getting mugged? What's going on is we've got a lot of individuals, even if you're not sure that they're sentient, even if you think that they don't have that much welfare at stake in them, even if they are sentient, right? The expected value of trying to improve insect welfare could be huge, right? Because there are trillions and trillions being farmed annually. And so if you can make some small difference, the EV is very high. Often people have some concern about that, and they think, ah, something's gone wrong here. You know, if we've gotten to the point where our expected value calculation is telling us to work on insects, then we've made a mistake. If that's the response, we can now try to think about, well, what exactly is the concern? So, um, oh, well, this is me just saying what I said, so we're not going to do that. Let's look at the risk attitudes. Um, you know, one thing you could have as a risk attitude is this avoid the worst case scenario, right? That risk attitude, however, is going to tell you that you ought to be working on the insect stuff, right? It makes that more plausible. Why does it make it more plausible? Because here's the worst case scenario. They are sentient, they matter a bunch, and we're doing something terrible to them, right? That would be very bad, right? The ideal scenario, in some sense, is they don't matter at all because they're not sentient. If they're just little robots, that's great news. I would be thrilled personally, right? Because I don't want there to be all this harm. So, if I am concerned about worst-case scenarios, right, this gives me an additional reason to take this low-probability event of insects being sentient and being subject to harm even more seriously. So, this is not going to help us out of the worry about fanaticism. It's going to actually lead us to double down on this particular low-probability outcome. However, there are two other attitudes. So one of them is that we might really be concerned about making a difference, right? You might be worried that if we go all in on insects, what's going to happen? We're going to spend a bunch of resources, we're going to try really hard, and, you know, maybe with 80% probability, they aren't sentient and we've thrown away all of our money. Sounds bad. 
You might not like that outcome. You might be concerned about that outcome, right? If you have that response that you don't want either yourself or others to be acting in ways that are ultimately futile, then you're expressing, perhaps, some kind of difference-making risk aversion. And so we can model this, and what it's going to do is it's going to decrease the value of working on these sorts of invertebrates, right? In general, it's going to favor beings more likely to be sentient, which could still be animals, right? Maybe it means you should be working on chickens instead of crickets. Or maybe it means you should be working on humans. We have to do the modeling to find out, right? And there's finally a third kind of risk aversion, ambiguity aversion, where we do not like poorly defined unknown probabilities, right? Here's another feature about insects. We just don't know. We're not that confident about the probability of sentience to assign or their welfare ranges, how much welfare they could in principle realize. So when we are thinking about what we ought to do with respect to insects, one experience we might have is think, oh gosh, I mean, Maybe the probability of them being sentient is like 0.0001, or maybe it's, I don't know, 0.7? I'm not really sure. Really hard. Consciousness is tough. What should you think? Right? And when, you're, when the range is really wide, and you have no idea really how to tack the ends of the range, you might think, okay, now I'm feeling uncomfortable. Right? And there are different reasons we could offer to explain why you might be uncomfortable with such uncertain probability estimates, but if you find yourself concerned in those cases, you are expressing this kind of ambiguity aversion that will again cut against insects, shrimp, and for beings of more certain sentience. Again, doesn't necessarily mean humans, but certainly could mean humans. So the point so far is just to recognize, hey look, there are these risk attitudes, some of us feel their pull when we think about some cases involving animals, now let's stand back and think more broadly about their implications generally. Uh, building off of that, I researched the question of how can risk aversion affect your cause prioritization more broadly? Um, and so in my report, I assume that we have the choice between spending $100 million on one project. It can be either existential risk mitigation, and you, within that, you can choose a high-risk but high-expected value project, or you can choose a lower-expected value but lower risk of failure or backfiring intervention. And then secondly, you can spend on one of three animal welfare projects. So the first one being cage-free campaigns for chickens. Uh, the second being a water quality intervention that uh, improves the uh, lives of shrimp on shrimp farms. And then the third being an, a shrimp welfare intervention that uh, stuns them before they're harvested and slaughtered. And then finally, you could spend on uh, a global health intervention, so either something like the Against Malaria Foundation, which is pretty low risk of failure, or something like a road safety intervention that tries to pass legislation in developing countries, but you're not really guaranteed any success there. Um, so when it comes to animal welfare interventions, our risk lies really in are they sentient and what are their welfare ranges? And same with global health, it's for the riskier interventions, will it come to fruition? But for existential risk work, it's a bit more complicated. What do we mean by risk? So uh, first we have to ask, are we risk averse to situations in which we make no difference or harm the world, or are we averse to uh, the bad states of the world arising like a existential catastrophe occurring? So say we're difference-making risk-averse, uh, you could then ask, what does it mean to make a difference? Does it, do we value inherently lowering the probability of an existential catastrophe, in which case we can calculate the expected value of lowering that probability, being the value of the future times the change in probability, and apply some ambiguity aversion because we're really not sure what the effect we have on the probability of an existential catastrophe is. Um, 
Secondly, you could say, no, uh, what I care about is counterfactually preventing um, a, an existential catastrophe. So something where I don't actually counterfactually impact that with all the money I'm spending on, I'm going to be averse to that situation. Or if I end up raising the probability such that I do counterfactually cause an extinction event, then that's pretty bad too. And there's a couple different ways of modeling that type of risk aversion. And then finally, if we want to avoid the worst states of the world arising, uh, we can calculate the risk-weighted expected utility of doing so, but because we're really uncertain about the probability of existential catastrophes, we have to do some kind of ambiguity weighting of that, or we could just take the expected value. So there's two different options with that. Um, there's a lot of results that come out of all these different models, but uh, one of them is that um, cage-free campaigns are really high value um, in expectation and robust to uh, risk aversion at a lot of different levels. And this is because we are pretty confident that they are sentient, and we think that relative to other animals, they probably can experience more uh, a high degree of welfare. Um, Cage-free campaigns are also pretty evidence-based. They have been proven successful, and there are a lot of animals that could be suffering if they're sentient. So that gives uh, cage-free campaigns an extra boost in avoiding the worst states of the world in which we just let a lot of animals suffer without doing anything. Um, for example, here is a comparison of the relative value of cage-free campaigns to the Against Malaria Foundation under one of our difference-making risk aversion comparisons. So even though you see a decline as you increase in risk aversion, we still come out with the conclusion that they're probably an order of magnitude better than spending on the Against Malaria Foundation, even considering the risks that chickens are not sentient or have low welfare capacity. And this is all using RP's uh, welfare ranges, and we'll get to uh, what if you discount that in a little bit. Um, the second conclusion that we reach is it really depends uh, upon your level of risk aversion and the intervention in question when we're comparing shrimp welfare interventions and something that is lower risk, like against Malaria Foundation. Um, this ends up being true because while uh, shrimp welfare interventions affect a lot of different animals per dollar, we are less certain about their probability of sentience and their welfare ranges. So um, with a similar comparison as with cage-free campaigns, uh, we show that the uh, water quality intervention with no risk aversion whatsoever is really high in expected value. It's probably 80 times better than against Malaria Foundation on our best estimates. But as you add more and more risk aversion, that will decrease significantly. And so at moderate levels, uh, against Malaria Foundation and the water quality intervention look roughly similar. And with the stunning intervention, it goes from the roughly equal in expectation to maybe the stunning intervention is a bit less uh, risk-weighted uh, expected utility than against Malaria Foundation. Uh, finally, um, uh, our third conclusion is around whether or not existential risk interventions um, are better or worse than cage-free campaigns. Um, so we find that uh, interventions that are higher risk of doing nothing or causing harm uh, can be really high in expected value, but they quickly become net negative uh, once we incorporate risk aversion. Um, by contrast, the lower risk ones that are probably higher in probability of success and they don't have those downside risks can withstand some low and moderate risk aversion and as, are as good as cage-free campaigns um, depending upon your counterfactual period of impact. So that becomes a dominant factor. Um, so this kind of just... In, demonstrates that under avoiding the worst risk aversion and some ambiguity aversion. We see that the high-risk uh, intervention for X-risk uh, starts out really high, but then decreases in its value, actually just becoming worse than doing nothing compared to uh, cage-free campaigns, whereas like the lower-risk, more sure bet one maintains a high level of cost-effectiveness. 
Um, and so uh, it basically, when you have those lower risk interventions, your period of counterfactual credit and more broadly, the value of the future becomes really, really important. So we can then ask how bad would extinction be? Um, so there's been previous work on this uh, by Toby Ord and others that has calculated the expected value of existential risk mitigation. Um, their work is really great, but has some limitations, including that uh, it doesn't consider a lot of uh, cases of how the value of human civilization will change over time. So their models uh, assume that there is constant value or linear growth or quadratic growth. Um, there are also fewer risk trajectories over time. So it's either constant existential risk over time or a high risk period followed by a low risk period, which approximate a time of perils model that we'll be talking about later. Um, and then finally, the persistence of existential risk mitigation uh, was considered to be only like one century worth or permanent and we wanted to explore more cases. So this report um, adds in some new models of how value of civilization changes in the future. So we added cubic growth and also logistic growth. And we added some new trajectories of existential risk over time, including ex exponential decay and uh, great filters hypothesis, which is more general than the time of perils where there are cycles of high and then low and then high and then low risk over time. And um, in addition, we tested 20 combinations of these risk and value trajectories and came up with some visual comparisons and you can play around with an interactive code base um, that also you can vary the persistence of the effects over time. Um, so one of our takeaways is that uh, value converges as long as existential risk does not go to zero in the limit. So we can still talk about uh, the value of mitigating existential risk even in very, very long time horizons. And as long as that risk doesn't converge to zero, then um, if we take a bunch of models about how the risk and value grow over the future, no single one of them is going to just absolutely swamp all the others in an aggregated expected utility calculation once we assign credences to each of them. Uh, so here's a cool chart that shows some of the results So um, of the expected value of a 0.01% relative reduction in existential risk. Um, and it's often assumed that astronomical value uh, accompanies existential risk mitigation, but we only see that in a few of these scenarios under the assumptions modeled. Um, and so, uh, Moreover, some of these scenarios that produce really high value, we might put less credences in the assumptions that you need to get there. So how we ultimately distribute credences amongst all of these different worlds uh, matters a lot to how we end up with our final expected value of mitigating existential risk. Uh, and then one last takeaway is that persistence of our mitigation efforts is really, really important. So as uh, the persistence increases, so does the value of mitigating existential risk. Uh, we do see some diminishing marginal returns, but we think that this is a really, really important area for future research because your ultimate results will change a lot depending upon how long the effects of your intervention lasts. Okay. Great. Okay, so the next project that we are gonna summarize here, done by Dave Bernard, um, looks at a certain narrative that is sometimes thrown around somewhat casually where there's sort of a choice between heaven and hell based on whether or not we get aligned AGI where if we get aligned AGI, all of our problems are solved, we get out of the time of perils, we move on to the great and glorious future, and if we don't get aligned AGI, it's the end. Um, so the assumptions that typically go in 
to this view, broadly speaking, at the highest level, something like this. We're in a situation of high existential risk. This is the time of perils, right? Aligned AI is going to get us out. It's going to significantly reduce this. If it does this, it's also going to enable us to have this very large and positive future, right? And it's overwhelmingly morally good, right? So this is the normative piece that we get that, that we work toward that particular outcome. And as a result, it ends up being the case that existential risk becomes a dominant priority. Okay, so, you know, there are people who say things in this vein, right? We could actually give you a lot of quotes, you know, broadly along these lines, thinking about the way things might go. Uh, if we never get AI, I expect the future to be short and grim. And if we don't get whacked by existential risks, right, this future is probably going to be wonderful, right? Uh, and of course, we can put together, you know, a, a host of observations, some more, some more casual than others, made by various individuals about uh, these sorts of views. However, we don't mean to attribute them to any particular individual. The claim here is not, oh, we can pin this view on some particular individual. Instead, I think this is like a view that's out there in the ether, right? Um, and what we did in this report is we identified 18 different pieces of this, some assumptions required to get this thing going, or if not required, some significant subset of them is required. And we just observe that if we go, like once we start laying them out, we realize, okay, at each point, there are critical uncertainties from the empirical claims all the way through to the normative claims, right? It's gotta be possible to produce this particular kind uh, of transformative or general uh, artificial intelligence that we're gonna have this particular kind of, you know, risk due to AI where, you know, misaligned AI will in fact produce an extinction risk of the kind that many people are concerned about. Uh, we have to think that AI is going to remind, be, you know, remain aligned indefinitely if we are going to, in fact, get this great and glorious future, and it would be tragic otherwise. So we can go on and we can list all of these sorts of claims that need to be made, and then we can just think, okay, you know, don't get hung up on the particular list, but think about what your list might be. Think about how many alternative possibilities there are for each one, and then ask yourself how confident can you be in the package required to get this particular picture if this is a motivation for going all in on existential risk. Now, there are different ways of trying to move from concerns about this list to a particular uh, practical conclusion about what you want to do. The simplest thing, of course, is just to assign a bunch of credences, multiply through, and figure out, well, you know, what do I have to be fanatical to end up thinking that this is what I ought to be doing? And if you aren't very confident, then you might well get that result. Of course, the probabilities of some of these things are gonna be correlated, the particular combinations, um, you know, we might dispute which particular premises are required. So we don't wanna make any general claims here about what exactly follows. Instead, what we wanna do is get people to be clear about what the various components of this view are, if it's in fact what motivates folks, and then to think about what follows from that. How confident can one be, and is it confident enough to get a very strong priority for AI-based work over everything else? So yeah, a lot of what we've been discussing, particularly with the value of reducing existential risk, relies on some ability to predict what the effects of our interventions will be in the long run. And as we've seen in previous sections, that having effects with long persistence often increases the expected value of those interventions. But the further we are looking out, we might expect those uh, expected value of those effects to uh, decrease in precision over time. And so we think that there might be a trade-off between the expected value of an action and the precision of our predictions. 
about its effects. So in this project, uh, Dave Renard looked at many randomized control trials from the development economics literature that um, to get a sense of empirically how fast is our precision about the effects of those studies uh, decrease over time. So uh, he first um, predicted one to 20 year impacts in RCTs and compared them with actual results and then used this uh, calibration to uh, come up with a Bayesian updating model of if we create some back of the envelope calculation and it spits out an estimated impact uh, and how does our posterior prediction about its expected value when combined with a very noisy prior and our noise in our precision grows over time, how does that affect what we should actually believe about that signal of the impact of our intervention? And so ultimately the results come out that uh, because noise in the predictions increases over time, then we should be pretty skeptical that the uh, calculations of really, really far out interventions will be as big as uh, we actually come up with in our back of the envelope calculations because noise grows over time. Um, and so you might just say, well, okay, um, with all these uncertainties about the long-run effects of our actions, we should focus more on the next couple hundred years. Uh, we're really confident that people in the near future matter, at least, and we might have more ability to predict the effects of our actions. So the last report touches on a so-called common sense case for existential risk mitigation that just focuses on the next few generations. Um, the few premises are that the value of existential risk mitigation accrues only to humans. Um, the average value of civilization is roughly the same as now, so we don't see radical changes in population or huge changes in the quality of life of people. And then it's only considering the next 120 to 180 years, so think from now until throughout the lives of our grandkids or great-great-grandkids. Um, and basically the huge question we're asking is, is extras the most valuable cause if we just look at the next few generations? Um, so to do this, uh, I came up with a bunch of scenarios of how extras projects could play out with different probabilities of having an effect, probabilities that those effects actually do reduce X risk, uh, if it backfires, how badly does it backfire, and um, different assumptions of if there's a successful project, how much risk does it mitigate. And uh, I chose ranges from 0.5 basis points per $1 billion to up to 1,000. And for context, surveys of X-risk researchers usually put typical values between 0.1 basis points and 10. So we just wanted to put some more implausible scenarios in there to see how much X-risk do you have to reduce for it to be much better than other cause areas. So um, one conclusion that we have is that spending on global health interventions like the Against Malaria Foundation is competitive with several of the plausible X-risk projects, but it's probably less cost effective than some other ones that we think are still plausible. So um, if, uh, it's, if you're reducing less than one basis point per billion in expectation, then they're roughly equal in cost effectiveness over the next couple hundred years, um, but they're probably 10 to 50 times less cost-effective than uh, X-risk projects that reduce between one and a half basis points per billion dollars and seven. Um, and if we consider the really far out implausible projects, uh, AMF is probably two orders of magnitude less cost-effective, but really these are projects that assume that we can reduce a significant portion of existential risk it, just for a billion dollars, and they usually require a lot of implausible assumptions. Uh, finally, the relative value of the Against Malaria Foundation increases as you add in risk aversion to causing bad effects or having no impact. A uh, second conclusion that we have is that cage-free campaigns are as good as most of our 
plausible existential risk mitigation projects under both RPs, welfare ranges and significantly lower ones. So using our welfare ranges, corporate campaigns are at least as good as all of the X-risk mitigation projects studied over the next couple hundred years. Um, and even using ones that where we assume that chickens have 1% to 4% the welfare range of humans, so about an order of magnitude less than our best guess estimates, uh, only two of the plausible scenarios come out in order of magnitude ahead of cage-free campaigns. And again, if you consider really high-risk existential uh, risk mitigation projects that could backfire, then uh, risk aversion will decrease the relative value of those projects relative to cage-free campaigns. Um, so that just this graph just shows this, uh, where if you take one of the scenarios that does beat cage-free campaigns under low moral weights, then um, uh, you see if it's a very low risk existential risk mitigation that project, then the relative value probably increases a little bit, but roughly stays constant. And then the very high risk, you could accidentally cause an extinction uh, if you do this project. That will decrease in value and actually become negative compared to doing nothing um, with moderate levels of risk aversion. Okay, so some upshots. So we are not trying to make the case here really that uh, you should do anything in particular. There is no immediate practical upshot. There's a lot more work that has to follow before we go in for practical results. That being said, the work's suggestive, right? And part of what it does is help us think about, okay, what happens when we start taking other risk attitudes seriously, when we are not purely risk neutral, when we identify the different kinds of risk aversion and we think about their implications? Well, we can work out what happens on moderate, low, high levels of risk aversion, and we can see the way that's going to change what we ought to do, and we can then think about, okay, well, how risk averse should we be as individuals and as a community, and what might follow from that? Right? And we can build models that will tell us something about that. And the striking result, I think, from all the work that Laura just summarized so nicely, is that it's often going to flip what you ought to do. Right? Having moderate levels of risk aversion of different kinds will have a huge bearing on our overall priorities. And so if we take those attitudes seriously, even to some degree, we may end up with quite different results about what we ought to do. I think implicitly lots of people do have some level of risk aversion just when they do something like round down low probabilities. If you do something like say, well, I don't know, that one's super low, I'm just gonna discount it, right? That is itself a kind of risk aversion. Fine, let's now take that seriously, let's think about what, it, what the precise attitude is that makes something like rounding down a low probability feel like a rational thing to do, and then try to model what happens when we take that um, into our into more systematic account in cause prioritization decisions. Finally, we do just want to point out that it's not obvious that we end up with existential risk being the sole priority for EA under a bunch of reasonable assumptions. That, of course, does not mean it shouldn't be a priority, maybe even the dominant priority, but it helps us calibrate a bit where there seems to be a trend toward favoring this, especially given recent developments in AI. So we want to say, yes, significant, yes, important, yes, something we should be spending time on thinking about, yes, of course, resources should be allocated toward that goal. However, there is a basis for diversification just through these attitudes that we might want to take seriously regarding risk, normative uncertainty, as well as all of the modeling that shows now the way we think about the value of the future, among other things. So thanks so much for listening. We look forward to engaging. And after this, we have a workshop where we will show off a tool that we have developed, again, to make these conversations clearer and more transparent, a cross-cause cost-effectiveness model that you can alter the parameters in yourself and see what happens when you try to compare something like bio-risk with shrimp stunning, with AMF. So, if you're interested in that, then join us once this talk is over. Thanks so much.
right. Laura, Bob, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who submitted questions on SwapCard. It's not too late to do that. You can pop over to the questions tab uh, and even just look through and uh, upvote thank you. questions that you want to see asked. Um, we've got just a few minutes, so I'll get right to some audience questions if you guys don't mind. Um, uh, so first of all, you guys sort of uh, presented this idea of, of sentience earlier in the talk as a sort of like binary question of it can be in this bucket of is or is not sentient. And then we had this slider of what probability uh, something like a, a cricket or a shrimp might be in the sentient bucket. Um, what happens if we think about things in terms of a slider of sentience itself? Like, can you sort of model sentience as a thing that is uh, you know, more or less true for a human versus a chicken versus an insect? And does that sort of interact differently with these different attitudes towards risk mitigation? Sure. So uh, the quick version of this, here are two basic approaches you can have. You can think about things the way we did, where sentience is the lights are on or off, and then the question is just what's the probability of the lights being on. Um, or you can have this degrees of sentience picture. I tend to think that what's happening in the degrees of sentience picture is that people are collapsing two different notions. They are having, on the one hand, this question of, you know, conscious and has a capacity to feel pain, on the one hand, and then the question of how much pain or how rich or complex is the nature and content of that content, uh, conscious experience on the other. So what we want to do is separate those things in our approach and say there's the probability of sentience, lights on or off, plus there's these things called welfare ranges, an estimate of how much welfare this kind of organism can generate relative to a human. But if you want to merge those things, you certainly can and do it all through degrees of sentience, um, which is the way some folks want to model it. And then you're just going to have a more complicated picture because um, you're going to have to figure out how exactly to merge these two notions that we have been thinking about as separate. Not saying you can't do it, it's just a different sort of project. So you'll have to have some kind of value weighting that you assign uh, if you go in for that sort of framework. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and in terms of thinking about these sort of different attitudes that you can take towards risk mitigation, um, you guys mentioned that, uh, you know, comparing across broad cause areas, so between X risk and animal welfare interventions, for example, uh, this is sensitive to your attitudes towards risk. Within something like X risk mitigation, do you think that there are implications here that EA should be keeping in mind for, you know, thinking about AI versus other, other yeah, areas? Or? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there, the results here suggest that you should, if you have any risk aversion and you're uh, thinking about whether or not you should do an intervention that you're like 55% sure it's going to be good, but 45%, you know, maybe it's bad if it has an effect, that probably shouldn't be doing that if you have alternatives that are just much lower in risk. So, say, implementing better pandemic preparedness. I don't see many situations in which this is net negative for the world. And so if you have that view, then you're probably better um, once you incorporate it, risk aversion on those types of projects versus the it's 55, 45, we're not really sure if it's good or bad. Um, and so I think there's a lot of valuable X-risk mitigation projects out there. Um, we've shown that they maintain their high value across some amount of risk aversion, um, but you should be pretty confident that what you're doing is pushing in the right direction. Makes sense. Um, so Noah has a great question that I think maybe is more in the philosophical camp um, about this idea of risk aversion. Uh, you know, in economics, it's often justified based on diminishing marginal utility. You know, my, my next dollar when I'm a millionaire does a lot less for me than when I'm just starting out. Um, but it's less clear that we have this sort of diminishing effect when it comes to just things like happy lives. Um, so hard question, obviously, but can you speak a bit on what some potential justifications might be for having risk aversion? Um, I'm also curious if just like sociologically, we know anything about what most humans tend to, to think when they're asked about this question. And yeah, so most humans are risk averse in various ways. Uh, I think it perhaps should go without saying that this is an idiosyncratic group uh, that's as, as interested in risk neutrality as it is. Uh, and in fact, perhaps some of the reasons why um, EA 
has been controversial, have been tied to its risk neutrality, so there's that to consider. But that being said, um, yeah, so true. One standard view, and a view I find very plausible, is that money has diminishing marginal utility, but actual utility does not have diminishing marginal utility, and we should not then justify risk attitudes on that basis. That being said, there are different ways of thinking about why you might have these attitudes. So take something like difference making. So you, couldn't give, you can give purely epistemic reasons to be risk averse. So for instance, you might worry that if you constantly act in ways where you cannot tell when you're being successful, you're, you're never successful because you're always acting on very low probability events. You're then in a position where it's very hard for you to learn from your mistakes. You can't tell when you're making a mistake or when you've done the right thing and just didn't pay off. So on a purely epistemic basis, you might want more feedback from the world, and that might push you toward um, caring more about difference making just so that you can figure out whether what you should do with the information you're getting from your actions. So that's one kind of motivation you might have. Of course, there are value-based arguments that you might give. Someone might think that it's unfair to uh, take a very low probability of helping a large number when there are individuals with obvious and clear needs who can be helped and that there's some special claim that those individuals have on our time and attention and resources that those with uh, a lower probability of being aided uh, may not have. That is, you know, a, it's a broadly contractualist idea, but it's not just a contractualist idea. Lots of people might find that compelling. And of course, you know, when it comes to something like ambiguity aversion, you can think about that quite often in terms of something like just are your actions justified at all, right? So you might think, you know, the strong evidentialist view says, you know, you should always and everywhere uh, only act on sufficient evidence, right? The practical evidentialist wants to, wants to say this. And you might say, well, look, when, you're, when your range is very wide and the distribution is very flat, you just really can't act on sufficient evidence. And so that doesn't have anything to do with diminishing marginal utility of utility, right? We're not claiming that, but it gives you some purely epistemic reasons that you might be concerned about um, particular kinds of evidence that you have. It certainly seems like a thing that requires a lot of careful reflection. And, yeah, uh, I mean, maybe the, maybe the simple thing to say here is, look, there are, of course, very compelling arguments for expected value maximization. No one's suggesting there aren't, but there are also very familiar problems with it. And there are a range of reasons that many of us take seriously in other contexts that seem to favor some level of risk aversion under uncertainty, decision-theoretic uncertainty, that gives us some basis for considering what the implications are of these alternative decision-theoretic approaches. Sure. Um, well, thank you guys so much for giving us a, a framework for getting traction on these very hard to think about uh, issues and, uh, and for speaking with us here today. Um, I think we'll call it there so folks have a few minutes to get to their 10.30 one-on-ones, um, or if you want to join us for the workshop, we're going to be walking there together to room 312 uh, and gathering in the back. Um, but please, first, one more time, join me in thanking Bob and Laura. Thank you.